Hey, party people, welcome to the Patrama Party, where the strippers get naked emotionally, just letting it all hang out. And you still have to tip them because it's the right thing to do. So grab your titty tassels and your wad of dollar bills and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about feeling like you're too much. Shout out to the listener who hit me up and asked if I could cover this topic. I was like, oh, wow. Yes, 100%. I have tried to navigate the world pretending to be chill and normal and cool when actually I felt like a complete emotional fuck up with huge feelings who would never be loved by anyone. So just no big deal. It's honestly, you know, humor aside, such a big, deep, complex topic. So to help us get some clarity and healing around it, I'm so happy to welcome back marriage and family therapist, Sarah Brunig. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Thanks for having me back. I think I might be feeling my too muchies right now, Um, but hi. (laughs) I feel very honored. <laughs> oh, well, I loved having you on before. So I'm ecstatic that you're back. You came on for the episode on codependence and it was such a great episode. Before we jump in though, you're a Virgo, right? Yes, I yeah. am. Yes. The sign of service and health and strong boundaries. We are just about to transition out of Virgo season. So happy birthday for one thing. Thank you. It's actually today, by the way. <gasps> Shut up, Sarah. <laughs> what? It is. It totally is. 44 people. What? We gabbed for like 10 minutes and you did not mention that. I mean, because I, I feel like right now getting out of jury duty today was way <laughs> more of a win than turning 44. The angels are looking down on you. They're like, no jury duty. Happy birthday. Thank you so, so, so much for spending your birthday with me and with us. That makes me feel so special. And how also tell us how Virgo season treated you being a Virgo yourself. Um, You know what? I have to say Virgo season is intense just now as a parent and a working parent. Um, there are just so many different schedules to keep on track. Um, you know, and I, you know, I'll go, kind of go with my mantra. Like I surf, I survived and I learned a lot about myself and about my kids and about life. Like even just in that like little month long place mm-hmm. and I'll take it. I will take it. Um, and I will, I'm a Virgo. So I also take notes for next year. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. This, um, taking notes is something that we can all take away from Virgo season notes to help us later down the road. I, I actually hear what you're saying in a big way because Virgo season's hard for me as a Sagittarius because I'm like not detail oriented, but this time around, I took on morning notes that from the artist way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it's a discipline. It's a practice. It is like there, it, it feels very Virgo to me in the sense that it's like kind of getting on top of your game. So I do really regimented. Yes. <laughs> but all, regimented, but for a healing purpose. Right. Yeah. And, and that is also the Virgo energy is like 
it's the healer. It's the nurse. It's about the body. And it's also co-ruled by Chiron. I don't know if you knew that. Um, Chiron is the planet of your greatest wound and your greatest healing journey. So you're seeing me too much right now. (laughs) (laughs) On that juicy note, um, I'm ecstatic to get into this topic with you. I know you wanted to start with a disclaimer. So go for it. Floor is yours. I mean, I, I feel like I need to say this stuff because it gives everybody like a sense of like where I'm coming from. Um, and in some ways, maybe most important, like with the exception of my gender, I hold all the privileges. And as much as I continue to learn and grow and try to be a student, all those things, like my perspectives and experiences are filtered through the privilege lens. Um, so I promise to you and to everybody listens that I'm going to continue to be a student, continue to learn, to grow, improve. And I also know that I will fuck up a whole lot along the way. Um, I also wanted to give you a sense of like how I'm grounded as a therapist, because it definitely is going to directly inform like how I approach what we talk about today. And that is like, I believe everything in us is oriented towards survival. We want to survive our surroundings, our communities. We want to survive our past experiences, our present circumstances. We already want to survive what might come. And it is an awesome like internal automatic organization that is constantly working for us. And it really kind of deserves a lot of compassion and a lot of respect And it's not thriving. We live in a world now where we can desire to thrive. We want quality in our everyday experiences. We want quality in our relationships within ourselves and our communities. We really want to thrive. Um, And thriving requires from us like our compassion, our creativity, courage, curiosity, playfulness, presence, and like so much more. So there you go. Thank you so much for starting us off with that. I... A lot of that is true for me too, um, in terms of privileges. And so I, I appreciate you so much bringing that into the conversation. And I also want to say that that's me too, right? Like I, I'm white passing. I, I'm able-bodied. I am heterosexual. I have a lot of those privileges too. And speaking of survival, I feel like this topic is, it's so relevant to that, right? To that whole idea of, I'm just trying to fucking, um, get through yeah make it in this world and (laughs) and i don't want that to be my focus anymore like i i don't want to just survive i do want to thrive so thank you for starting us there i'm going to talk a little bit about my experience with feeling like i'm too much while i do that feel free to jump in with thoughts ideas psychic revelations or you know kick back pluck your eyebrows knit whatever feels good either way at the end i'll turn some questions over to you how does that sound Sounds good. I got my chin hairs this morning, by the way. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So you're prepared. Amazing. Okay. Here we go. I was trying to think back on when I first started to feel like I was too much. I definitely have memories of being little and being told to go to my room if I wanted to cry, which, you know, beyond feeling uh, shamed, had this additional impact of making me feel like what I was crying about was stupid. And I, you know, I shouldn't be crying. There were a lot of moments with my mom where she would say things that, you know, didn't outright say that we were unwanted or that our needs were too much, but that was the underlying message. So things like I could have been really successful if it hadn't been for you girls, or I'm going to send you to live with your father, or 
um, one time she did outright say, I wish I'd never had children. And all of those moments cumulatively, like if you look at them all together, had the effect of making me feel like my existence was too much, right? Like me being there was too much for my mom. So I think that's sort of when the seed was planted. And I think it set me up for what came later down the line, but I didn't have a clear conscious thought like, oh, I'm too much until adolescence. Around the age of 12 or 13, I have a super clear memory. I was at my dad's gig. My dad's a musician. And every time they got to the end of a song, I would, I mean, I wouldn't scream per se, but I would woo heartily. Okay. Like I was, I was wooing y'all and I was wooing hard. And let me provide a little backstory here. My dad, as a general rule, either ignored me, criticized me or verbally attacked me. Like I can name on probably one hand all the times my dad was nice to me as a kid. And I had done everything in my power leading up to that point at 13 years old, 12, whatever it was, to win my dad's affections. Incidentally, nothing I did worked. My dad was never really impressed with me or even interested, at least outwardly. But I was going hard on the fawning, which if you're not familiar, it's a trauma response where instead of fight, flight or freeze, you fawn, meaning you compliment the person who appears as a threat, you appease them, you stroke their ego, et cetera. And by the way, if you want to learn more about that, I have an episode about fawning trauma that might be helpful to you. Anyway, I was fawning all over the place with my dad to try to get him to love me. And on this day at his gig, the way I decided to do that was to woo really loudly at the end of every song to be like, I'm your biggest fan. You're amazing. I support you. Right. And after doing this, after a few songs, he looked down from the stage and told me to shut up. Oh, mama. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't good. So that was the first time I can really clearly remember feeling like I was too big, too much, too loud. And it was intermingled with this other thing that was like, I'm too big and too loud and too much. And so that's why I don't get love. That moment with my dad was probably the first time that thought really showed up clearly and fully formed for me. Like a billboard. Yes. Neon billboard blinking. I can feel that when you say that. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that as this was emerging in my relationship with my dad so solidly, it was also emerging with this boy I had a crush on. So it was like, this, um, these parallels, right. We're getting created, which I think is so interesting because it wasn't happening with my platonic girlfriends. Really. It was happening when I had crushes. The memory I have is that I was at a water park with my best friend and there was this boy there who I knew, and I had a huge crush on him. And the three of us were in line for a ride. And when it was my turn to go down the slide, I purposely screamed super loud, uh, you know, as like, I don't know, like an attraction tactic, I guess. (laughs) Like maybe that doesn't make sense, but there was this feeling that I had from my relationship with my dad. And it was that I wasn't remarkable, right? Like I wasn't worth paying attention to. And if I was going to get attention, I was going to have to work really hard for it. It wasn't going to come easily. So I was screaming on this ride because I just literally wanted his attention. And later my friend told me that after I went down the slide and I, you know, I was screaming super loud that the boy I liked rolled his eyes. And I just remember this huge shame coming up in me. 
it was the same kind of shame that I'd felt with my dad when he told me to shut up from the stage. It was like my attempts to connect and find love and belonging are annoying to people. They're too much and I'm too much. And because I'm too much, I get rejected. The rejection is my fault. The next time I remember a clear instance of experiencing that feeling of being too much, I was 15. I had been sexually assaulted by my neighbor about six months before, and I was spiraling. I was also not telling anyone I was, I was spiraling because that's how I knew how to cope to just pretend shit was cool and become the class president and the captain of the dance team and get straight A's and then go home and write poems and sob in the dark to Tori Amos. That was like a lot of what high school was like for me. (laughs) I mean, like I'm just hearing like how strategic I use that word a lot. Like I'm just really appreciating all these different ways. Your body was trying desperately to get your needs and wants met. That's actually a very helpful word because it, it separates the shame out. Right. Cause it's Mm. like, no, there was a strategy. Like I was doing something that made sense, which at the time I felt very out of control is, is kind of, I think how I felt. So thank you for, for, for that. Anyway, one of these days I was feeling brave and I showed my mom a poem I'd written about the experience of like losing my virginity in this awful way, which I had told my mom about when it happened. My mom read it, looked up at me, said, aren't you over this yet? And handed it back to me. And that was it. That was all she said about it. Yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, uh, I can only imagine like who I would have been if that moment had gone differently. (laughs) Right. Like it was such a. As parents, we can just really fuck it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it was. uh, It was it was incredibly painful. And this was coupled with a lot of comments from my mom and my sister they both all my life told me I was too sensitive, even even well into my adulthood up until like probably just a few years ago. I've since learned that they both have avoidant attachment styles. But of course, when I was younger, I didn't know that. So there was always this shame around my feelings. And when my mom, you know, metaphorically rolled her eyes at my poem about being sexually assaulted, it definitely had that same effect. You know, I was 15. So I wasn't like, wow, my mom is really failing to provide effective parenting right now. You know, I was like, wow, why can't I get over, um, you know, having my first ever sexual experience be an assault, right? Like, I mean, when I look back on it, it's really fucked up and heartbreaking. But at the time I was a child and I really took that shame on and felt like I must be too sensitive and I must be too much. I mean, of course, because you're looking to your mom to to give you guidance on how do I handle this? And the guidance she gave it to you is like, you should have been over it. Right, right. You should have no emotions about this. Exactly. Now, I realize this may not be everyone's experience, but I want to put this out there in case people can relate. By the time I came into adulthood and was going to college, I had full-blown complex PTSD. So complex PTSD, it's the type of PTSD you have from experiencing ongoing trauma or abuse. And as someone who was raised around narcissistic behavior, substance abuse, um, parentification, right? I was not doing well. (laughs) I was not in a good place. By the way, I recently did episodes on complex PTSD and parentification, if either of those topics are relevant for you. Anyway, I was not 
doing well. And it was starting to show by the time I got to college. I lived in a co-op one year with a bunch of like stoners and hippies. The next year I joined a sorority. So I was like having this identity crisis. Oh, college. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Because everyone else is like posting all their like pictures of having the best time of their life in college. And my, my college experience was just like chaotic. I didn't make any real friends in the sorority because it just wasn't the right place for me, but I pretended it was going great, which was my strategy. And I stayed in it for three years. My sophomore year of college, I became anorexic after I found out my boyfriend was cheating. That lasted about a year until I started dating someone who had an overeating disorder. And then I just started like eating it. It was just like, I was flip-flopping around. I didn't really know who I was. I didn't know how to get love. I didn't know what I deserved. I didn't know how to take care of myself. I felt rejected in dating scenarios constantly. And I didn't understand why. And I felt deeply inherently flawed. By the time I'd graduated college, it was a real mind fuck. On paper, everything looked great. I had a 3.9 GPA. I was a PR chair of my sorority. I spoke three languages. I had a dance minor. I mean, I was like doing all the surface things that I thought meant success. But underneath, I was in a constant state of emotional suffering and the tiniest thing could trigger it. Like I remember one time I was hanging out with a girlfriend who I knew smoked a lot of weed and we agreed we were going to go back to our houses, take a shower, nap, whatever. And then she was going to call me and we were going to get dinner. Well, she never called. And I freaked out and just sat in my room crying because I felt sure that she just didn't want to hang out with me. She called me the next day and was like, fuck, I'm so sorry. I got really high and totally forgot I was supposed to call you. (laughs) But (laughs) you know, like, yeah, Obviously, like we're 22. That's exactly what happened. But those situations happened a lot where I like it could it, it couldn't I couldn't wrap my hand my head around the idea that like this wasn't a, a, a rejection of me because of something that was wrong with me because I was too much. Right. And I started to notice that things that really hurt me, they didn't seem to hurt other people and things that made me feel extreme despair they sort of like rolled off of other people's backs and having that experience over and over again, where I was having these intense emotional responses and other people weren't the narrative I'd already started in my head around being too much, just got louder and louder. And by the way, if you want to feel like you're too much, you're too big, you're too intense, try joining a sorority and being a vocal feminist. It's, you know, I mean, that had to be bonkers. I'm just, I'm just sitting there thinking like there's this phrase in the South called being on duck status where you're calm on the surface, but you're paddling like hell underneath. That was it. Yes. And it just sounds like college was some massive duck status. Oh my God. Duck status. A hundred thousand percent. Oh my God. (laughs) So almost immediately after college, literally a year out, I fell into a deep depression. I mean, you could argue I was already in a deep depression, but this was serious where I was self-soothing with suicidal ideation. Like literally the idea of disappearing into a grave would help me fall asleep at night. It was dark and terrible and spirit breaking, but only one person knew about it. Like I was, I was in grad school. I was making straight A's. I was teaching an intro to English class. I was going to my department's poetry readings and all this shit. And then I was going home and fantasizing about death. And the reason I was hiding it and hiding it so well was because my belief that I was too much was so deeply embedded inside me that I was terrified of showing people what was really going on because I thought that if I did, it would push people away. 
Wow. Did that make you try even harder to look okay on the outside? Yes. hundred okay. percent. Yeah. Yes. It was like, you know, th- that Shakespeare quote, me thinks thou doth protest too much. It's like, I was working so hard to make sure everything looked okay because it was so not okay. I want to say it wasn't like I was actively making a choice. I wasn't just depressed. I was ashamed of having feelings that other people might not like. And so I hid them. And I just want to say that at least for me, that thing, that pattern of I'm too much, so I have to hide. It resulted in this general behavior of being driven inward, this isolation that becomes so second nature, which means that loneliness becomes so second nature, this sense of I have to do this on my own because I can't let anyone see Because if they see how big this is for me, they'll abandon me. So I just want to name that in case anyone else relates. Anyway, this all came to a head for me in my late 20s. I was living in San Francisco. This is like 2007, 2008. It was the height of hipster culture. And San Francisco was the hub of hipster culture. And if you'll recall, hipsters, though I actually totally approve of, you know, much of the thrift heavy aesthetic of that time period, the culture itself was all about irony, right? Like everything was about being smart and conceptual and sort of insincere, you know, but super cute while they were doing it. Red jeans, blue shirt. Let's go. With a <laughs> yeah. Hat. yeah. American apparel, head to toe, shiny <laughs> fucking gold leggings. So yeah, I feel it. you remember <sighs> this time in San Francisco was when the feeling of being too much started to rear its head because Now that I was in a new city trying to make new friends, trying to date, trying to connect with old friends who were also in SF, it was becoming really clear through those social situations that I was like hiding from in grad school that shit just wasn't right. So here I am, I'm coming out of this serious depression, you know, I'm where I was having suicidal ideation. I graduate from grad school, move to the city and start trying to assimilate into the scene right away. I'm trying to make friends with these girls who are like very cool and sort of emotionally reserved and removed and just like, don't really want to be my friend. (laughs) Like they're nice when I bump into them, but they're not calling me to hang out. And a healthy person might ask themselves, do I like these girls? Had I done that, my answer would have been like, honestly, not really like, not that they're bad people, but you know, they're kind of closed off and also kind of boring, but I kept trying to hang out because my belief was, I'm too much. I'm not cool like them. If I wasn't too much, this would all be working out. So I just need to get on their level. I think it was also around this time that the term fuck boy started, if I remember correctly. And it makes a lot of sense because more than I'd ever experienced before, there was suddenly a culture of people using each other for sex that dominated the dating scene. Like I remember Vice back when Vice was just like a physical magazine and not a media giant. Vice literally did an article in their magazine where they interviewed two people who had just fucked in the back room of a house party. And the whole piece was just on how they didn't really care about each other or the sex or the experience. They were just fucking on a gross mattress. It didn't have any sheets on it. And then they were just going to go back to the party like nothing had happened. And that was sort of the sexual pop culture of the time. It could literally be summed up as I don't care about this person simultaneously I'm hooking up with this guy I really like who I've been hooking up with off and on for almost 10 years at that point who is blatantly just using me for sex and blatantly has been using me for sex that whole time he's flirting with other women in front of me at parties 
And, and I'm not revealing to him how painful the situation is for me, because again, my experience was that if anyone saw my pain, they would recoil. They wouldn't want me. I'd be like sort of gross to them. So I just keep hooking up with him whenever he calls, which is like once a month or whatever, pretend that I'm fine with him flirting with these women in front of me because I don't want to be too much. The fact that I care about the situation at all, as far as I was concerned, was proof that I was too much because I couldn't be like the woman in the Vice article. I couldn't have sex without having big emotions come up for me. So obviously I'm defective and too intense and it's a turnoff for people. Also, like I didn't know that I had anxious attachment style and you know, our whole fear is being abandoned. And so it's very intense to sleep with someone who then doesn't call you for a month. You know, it was also around this time that one of my best friends, someone I'd been super close with since middle school, he was also living in San Francisco at this time. And he'd been weirdly avoidant with me when he was going through bouts of oppression. He'd want to see me. But if I tried to get him to come hang out with me, or if I was going through something, he wouldn't show up. And when I finally called him on it, he told me that he'd been feeling disappointed in me. That was the word he used for being depressed. And so he'd been avoiding me, which luckily I had enough, uh, I guess, self-respect at that point to tell him to, you know, get fucked. Basically. I was going to say, I just had this like one way sign in my head of like, wait, yeah. Friendships, best friends aren't one way. Like, yeah, right. Like, yes, I took good care of you when you were depressed and now I'm depressed and you're disappointed. So yes, I, bye-bye. <laughs> goodbye. Yes. But, but it also hurt a lot, right? Oh yeah. Feeling of being too much was, it was like, it was breathing down my neck everywhere I turned. And here it was again, this messaging that my emotions were too big and that's why I wasn't wanted. And what's crazy about it in retrospect is that it was a twofer, right? It had two self-defeating sides. It was like, people don't want me because I'm too much, right? But the other side was, I'm already being rejected for being too much, even though I'm not telling anyone what's actually going on with me. Or if I am, it's just a small part of it. It's not the whole thing. So I'm too much when I'm pretending that I don't have intense feelings. And I'm too much the second anyone gets a glimpse of my intense feelings. I can't win. These girls I'm trying to be friends with, they don't have a big emotional responses like me and they find me off putting this guy. I'm trying to get to love me. I'm not mysterious enough for him. I don't play hard to get enough. I'm too much. The entire dating scene is set up around not caring and it's just not me. And so I'm going to be alone forever. One of my best friends since fucking puberty is avoiding me because he's disappointed that I've struggled with depression. Essentially, it was just like, I'm too much. So I can't get the love I want which of course, that's what I believed. Literally everyone in my family, all of whom were emotionally avoidant, had either directly said that to me or they treated me that way. When I was a child, they'd acted like my perfectly normal and healthy emotional responses were over the top and excessive and annoying, which was another way of saying, don't be you. Don't have a big feeling about something because you being you with all your you feelings is fucking irritating. Meanwhile, I'm extremely sensitive because I have serious complex PTSD after being abused throughout my childhood, but no one at that time that I knew of, I mean, I'm sure people were talking about stuff, but not anyone I knew was talking about parentification, narcissistic abuse, complex PTSD. I had no idea I'd been abused. I just thought there was something really fucked up about me that made me too sensitive, too emotional, too intense. Things that didn't hurt other people hurt me deeply. 
And it was that feeling, that feeling that my intense pain was a sign that I was too much and therefore unlovable that came to a head one night when I was at home writing in my journal. And I wrote over and over again to God, you made me wrong. I was literally telling God that he fucked up when he made me because I couldn't exist in the world the way that all these other people did. I couldn't play the game. I couldn't be aloof. Shit didn't roll off my back. I was intense and intense pushed people away and made them not want me. That's what I thought. Fast forward 10 years, I'm in my late thirties. And this story is the straw that broke the camel's back for me and actually caused a massive healing crisis in my life. A guy who'd been my roommate years before started talking to me on Insta and a little backstory. We'd hooked up before he moved out. So there was kind of like a vibe between us, but it had been like seven years or something. And at first it was just like basic DM messages, you know, maybe a little flirty, but not really. And then we started texting. He made me a playlist at one point. That's so old school. Yes. I, I know. I feel like a mixtape. I have a mixtape from my husband from the 90s. But do you remember the feeling when someone fucking made you a, a, a playlist or a mixtape? It's like, oh, oh, this is love, right? Like, I mean, it's like DIY homemade stuff, right? Yeah. It's like when your kiddo makes you a card, like you yeah. keep that. You feel that effort that they take that choice, that thoughtfulness. Oh, man. Well, and also it's like you're analyzing every song. What does this mean? What are you trying to tell me? Like, especially if someone's flirting with you, right? Mm-hmm. So one night I'm out dancing and I get a text from him and he has sent me a Sufjan Stevens song. And I text him back and I'm like, Hey, I'm out dancing. I'll listen to this soon. And he responds and says, I miss you. You left an indelible mark on my soul. And that is a direct fucking quote. Whoa. Whoa. Right. Obviously I'm losing my shit at this point because he's just basically said the thing that I dream of the person I want to be with, you know, saying to me, right? Like, I'd had such a big crush on him when we lived together. So I was like, oh my God, it's happening. I'm going to fall in love. Yes, yes, yes. I was living in Austin at the time. So he tells me that same night that he's going to come out to Austin. It's going to be so amazing, all this stuff. And then I go home, listen to the song. And it's a song about being in love with someone and not being able to tell them. So I'm over here like, holy shit, this guy's smart. He's funny. He's on the right side of politics. He's employed. He has great taste in music. I like his shoe choices. He is checking the boxes. Every single box, girl. I was like, this is happening, right? And before I go to bed that night, he texts me that he wants to wrap me in his arms and that he's coming out to Austin ASAP. And then I don't fucking hear from him for like three days when we'd been texting each other every day. And when we do start texting again, he's still kind of sending me songs that are like, you know, love songs, but suddenly being really wishy-washy about coming to Austin and just like being weird. I couldn't tell what was happening. So finally I'm like, I'm too anxious about this. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know if he's in a vulnerability shame spiral. I don't know if he was lying when he texted me all that stuff. I don't know why I'm not hearing from him now. Let me also pause to say that my experience of this guy, because we lived together for maybe nine months and we were friends like roomy dance party, watch a weird documentary, order soup together friends. So I'm thinking this is a solid guy who's having a hard time with vulnerability right now. That's what I thought. Anyway, 
I'm over not knowing what's happening. And I'm like, this isn't fucking high school. I'm almost 40, which I was at that point. I don't have time for this. So I send him this long text. That's really honest and vulnerable. I throw all my cards on the table. I'm like, hi, I had a crush when we lived together. I really like you. I really want you to come out here. I'm not asking for monogamy. I'm just like telling you how I feel. But if you're just getting stoned or something and sending these songs about being in love and telling me that I fucking, you know, took a Sharpie to your soul, but that's not actually where you're at, then no hard feelings, but those texts need to stop. I 100% expected him to text me back a screenshot of his ticket to Austin. I was like, there's no way with what a good guy he is that he would have sent me that stuff if he didn't mean it. Well, we all know where this is going and it's not to a fucking Texan rendezvous. He writes back that he was sorry if his quote, goofy late night texts had confused me and that he hoped I had hoped I hadn't been reading into the songs he was sending me. They were just songs he thought I'd like and that I'm a really lovely person, but he had no way of knowing if he really liked me in a romantic way. Oh my God. I kind of want to punch him in the face. <laughs> yes. Could we all please just envision that because, um, it was, uh, it was, a direct 180 from what I expected. Yes. And what's so fascinating about that experience to me now is that I didn't realize at all in the moment that I was being gaslit, right? Which in retrospect is really obvious because of my history with mental abuse and narcissism, et cetera. My first thought was I'm being rejected because I showed up with big emotions. I'm fucked up and defective because I had a, a big emotional response to his text messages when I should have just not cared. And then on top of it, I expressed how I was feeling and it was too much. It was too intense. And I'm stupid. I never should have done that. And because I'm so stupid and so intense, I ruined my chance for love. And, and this was the real thing. I will never find love because of how intense I am. It was like, if only I could be less intense, then I'd be wanted or said another way. If I could just not be who I am and not feel what I feel, then I would be loved. After that happened, I completely spiraled. Within a month of, you know, like just trying doing my strategy, trying to pretend like everything was fine, I started to have serious bouts of suicidal ideation again. I couldn't stop crying. I was crying in bathroom stalls of public restrooms, crying in the car, crying in the bathtub. I felt crazy. I started isolating again and not going out. I was too afraid to tell anyone. So no one knew what was going on. And finally, when that serious suicidal ideation popped up, I, I realized like I am hanging on by a thread here. The belief that having emotions made me too much and unlovable was so excruciating for me that finally at that point, after all the years of trying so hard to just push through it and avoid it and succeed past it, I just couldn't pretend like everything was fine anymore. I was in such bad shape that I finally just drove to a mental health clinic and sat for hours in the lobby until someone matched me with a therapist. I was like, I'm not leaving here till someone helps me because I'm not okay. And I don't know what I might do to myself. And that's when I really started my healing journey. So what has helped me heal? It's taken me a lot of therapy to realize that everyone in my family really shamed me when I had big emotions, whether those emotions were positive, like wooing for my dad at his gig or difficult, like being depressed after being raped. And, and that became my norm. That was what I knew. 
And so I felt really comfortable around people who treated me that way, especially the men I dated or tried to date. The thing was, because I didn't know how to love myself, all I'd been taught in my family was how to reject myself. I saw these emotionally unavailable people and I thought, I want that. I want what they have. I want to be able to not care and be aloof and play it cool and play hard to get. I thought that's what it meant to be cool. Finally, I got clear that I actually much preferred being around people who were more like me. I remember I had a therapist who asked me, do you like hanging out with people who don't meet you emotionally? And I was like, well, no, I actually like it when people can open up to me. And she was like, right. And if you want people like that in your life, don't you think there are other people who also want that? People who want to be around people like you, people who want connection and are sensitive and who talk about the ups and downs they go through. That had never occurred to me before. <laughs> and it really shifted things for me. I started looking specifically for people who were emotionally available and walking away from people who weren't. Not because I was like, fuck you guys, but because I was like, oh yeah, I'm just not into that vibe anymore. I also started to lean into my big emotions. Renee Tate, who came on recently for the complex PTSD episode, she said in that episode that shame can't exist in the light. Shame thrives in darkness. And that really resonated. And I hadn't thought of it quite in that way before, but that was literally the metamorphosis I went through. I was just like, hi, I have big feelings. That's what I do. <laughs> you know, to the point that I started a podcast about feelings and trauma. I just made the, <laughs> you know that I wasn't going to turn my back on my feelings ever again. And part of that work of not turning my back on myself has involved reparenting techniques, which I've talked about on here a few times, but it's been so important in my healing journey because really every time a big or even huge emotion comes up in me, there's an, a child inside of me, right? An inner child who's behind it. And she feels unloved, unseen, disrespected, despairing, lonely, whatever. If I turn my back on the feeling, I'm turning my back on her. And that's exactly what she experienced as a little girl. Just a lot of people who were so deep in their own mental health struggles that they had to shut her down when she was in need, which has been a whole other part of my healing process, coming to understand the nature of the abuse I experienced as a little girl, parentification and narcissistic abuse. Victims rarely even know that abuse has happened to them unless someone points it out to them at some point. So of course I'm coming into adulthood with severe complex PTSD after 20 years of abuse, you know, that's going to mean big, intense emotions. When you're abused, you have a lot of pain to work through. So yeah, I started getting into a rhythm of not shaming myself when those big feelings came up and instead asking myself, how old is this pain? When was the first time I can remember feeling this? Do I have a memory I associate with this feeling? And then I go back to that memory and I visually in my mind's eye insert an adult version of myself into the scene. And that adult me screams at my parents, tells them to get fucked, wraps their mouth with duct tape, whatever needs to be expressed, whatever needs to come out in the visualization. Then I turn to the child version of myself and I ask her what she needs. Does she need to be held? Does she need to cry? Does she need to go roller skating? And then I visualize giving her what she needs. I take care of her. I essentially reparent her. 
So in other words, I work with the feelings rather than against them. And I also embrace them. They're here to teach me something. And honestly, embracing them rather than pretending that they're not there has led me to some of the most fulfilling relationships of my life. Trying to seem indifferent and aloof and quote unquote cool. That shit just wasn't the move. It didn't bring the kind of people into my life that, you know, that I really wanted. It brought me more people who told me I was annoying and disappointing and needed to calm down. And that just made me feel even more lonely and isolated and fucked up. That authenticity piece has opened me up to people who are into me and into my big feelings. Because as I said, yes to those feelings, other people said yes to. I, I also just need to say, I'm not perfect at this. And I still have moments where I spiral, but these are the, these are the pieces that have like gotten me to a point where I can spiral for a minute and then be like, Oh wait, I know what's happening here. And I also just want to share something that came through for me very clearly when I was living in San Francisco, I had, okay. I I'd been sleeping. I had just woken up like one second before it was the middle of the night. And I was still in that weird space where you're kind of still in your dream, but realizing that it was a dream and clear as day, I heard a woman's voice say, in order for something to grow, it must be trusted, not pierced. I've never forgotten that. It has become a compass for me. And I remind myself all the time, if I pierce the validity of my feelings, no matter what size they are, if I pierce me, who I am, if I tell myself I'm too much, I don't get to have love. I wound myself, right? I can't grow. I have to trust those feelings now as having something super important to tell me. They are me and I trust me. That's how I grow. Even if like, you know, people like to say things like your feelings aren't you. And like, in part, that's true because feelings will come and go. But in that moment, in the here and now, when that feeling comes up, it is me in that moment. And I want to trust that feeling as having something really important to tell me. Okay. That was a mouthful. Sarah, how are you doing over there? Yeah, I really like, you notice I kind of like got silent the more and more you got into your story because it's, I mean, it's, I don't want to judge it. And yet I'm going to and say like, it's like just the beauty, um, the beauty of it and the movement in it. Um, I really wanted to just take it all in. And I love that you're saying like, look, like my feelings aren't all of me and they're a part of me and they're a part of me calling to me for attention, calling to me, you know, to be of help, to be of service. I think that that is really all of us, you know, have such interesting relationships with our feelings. Um, and I, I, I just love that. I, I, I'm thinking of just how important it is really, um, to say that, yes, our feelings aren't all of us. Yes. Our feelings are part of us. Yes. Our feelings are important. You know, it, it's this all or nothing with our feelings, I think can really trip us up, really, yes. really trip us up. And I love the way you create like you have this recipe for yourself with them so that they don't get thrown out and they don't become all powerful either mm. that's just it's really really beautiful oh i hadn't thought of it that way but you're right yeah it's like it's not an either or it's a both and like yes these feelings were pa will pass and yes i'm gonna respect them in this moment and see what's going on behind them yeah yeah absolutely 
Okay. I am so fucking excited to get into this with you. (laughs) So (laughs) because I'm like, Sarah, what do we do? (laughs) How do we fix it? So (laughs) let me jump into this first question I have. I've heard people use phrases like empath and highly sensitive person or like highly intuitive person in relationship to this idea of feeling like you're too much. And as someone who has experienced different kinds of emotional abuse, like, you know, like I mentioned, parentification, narcissistic abuse, sometimes I wonder if these are just positive spins on being trained to feel other people's feelings and to neglect your own. And I'm curious, can you kind of talk about the connection between these, like between being a quote unquote empath, uh, being emotionally abused in these different ways, and also feeling like you're too much? Sure. Um, let me just to orient myself when I want to say like a person who identifies with these just, um, can identify with like these descriptors, like being an empath, uh, which is the one I'll use most since it's the shortest word to say, um, they can identify with these descriptors and not identify with being abused. Um, Mm -hmm. and these same humans may also feel like too much at times, I'm going to orient this just around this connection that you're speaking of specifically, the labels, the abuse, the self-neglect, and what I call the too muchies or the too muchness. Um, and how I'm going to answer this, it will be less jolting now that we've heard your story, um, but I hope it will all make sense Like if I can get myself to the end without tripping me up. Um, so I think, it was inc- I think it's an incredibly, incredibly functional strategy for a kiddo in an abusive situation to create a part of themselves that is hypervigilant or hypersensitive to others to become, to have this highly intuitive, highly empathic quality. And it's probably also really strategic to try to exile or neglect certain emotional parts to help endure the abuse, especially when you can't make sense of it at that age. To have an internal and an external voice tell you you're too much, be smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, it might actually give you a sense of agency when you're experiencing powerlessness. And I'm sounding complimentary to these strategies. And I just want to say out there, like, I'm talking about a survival strategy during physical or emotional violence. I am not talking about healthy. I'm not talking about ideal. I'm talking about getting through. And being in a physical or emotional violence situation is not what I want for anybody, for this, for this to be the optimal choice, right? So these parts of these voices continue even when the abuse is finished, just like you shared so eloquently in your story, even when their function is no longer necessary, when it's not applicable. And that's where these new kind of descriptive terms can get tricky because it's important for us to like edit or reframe incorrect history as we grow and as we learn and these sensitive, intuitive parts, they can be pathologized and they can be negatively judged, right? These new labels like empath, highly intuitive, they speak to their function. And for those of us that identify with these terms and or feel like too much, I think finding language that includes compassion and respect for that empathicness can help create like space for understanding and healing. What we don't want to do with these new descriptors is to reinforce this function of exiling your own emotions, Mm -hmm. of saying that like, well, I'm highly empathic. So because I have this, I, I still must neglect my own, my own inner children, my own emotive parts. 
Um, and so I hope that kind of like makes that connection and build sense. Like we want to find that complexity of being like, yes, like this was necessary. And this part of me, it needed to be here. It really helped me get through. And my emotions deserve space too. I really, really, really like that you brought in respect because I think that is the missing piece, right? Because when you, when you're raised in these abusive situations there, it's like you learn that getting disrespected is how things work, right? Like it's just how it goes. And as we get older and like, I've heard, you know, so many people be like, oh, I'm an empath. I'm an empath. And it's like such a lovely thing, right? To, oh, I think about other people's feelings. I can feel their feelings, right? That's what you always hear is like, I can, I can sense other people's feelings. It's like, I'm psychic. It's like, no, you were abused. (laughs) You learn to do that so that you could survive, uh, parents who were um, like maybe unpredictable or, you know, mean or like, you know, what violent, whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially as children, like we have a brain that is developing. It, it's not wired for the kind of complexity that we have the opportunity for as adults. And so we go to a very, very binary place with all of this, too. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important to remember um, when we think about either because we think either it's all about me or it's all about you. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times both with my children as well as like my couple's clients, I'm constantly saying like this moment is about you. Absolutely. And this moment is about the other person. It's not only about them and it's not only about you. How do we not diminish our own experience and not diminish the other person's experience and exist in it together. But as kids, I feel like we can't do that. And oftentimes we've gotten the mess. We get the message from dysregulated parents that feel like if I could just control you, we would all be happier. Everything would be calm and I'm going to control you. And this is unconscious, of course, by making you think that you're too much, because if Mm. you believe you're too much, you'll get smaller and then I will feel more comfortable because I won't feel dysregulated. Right. Right. And that's why it's such a beautiful, like, right. And I like, it's not conscious necessarily on your parents' parts. You have to remember that it's like, they're trying to survive too. That aside, it's like, as an adult, I... I can, I can, because the respect piece comes in, I can say, I see that you're experiencing that and it's just not going to fucking work for me. That's just not going to work for me now. Yeah. It's like such a 180. And also just being like, like, oh, who am I? That was, that's another thing I think part, like I just am realizing with all of this is that I came into adulthood, not fully knowing who I was, not really having an identity. Cause I was always just trying to like dance around other people's expectations so that I could get my needs met. And so in that San Francisco example, it's like, who am I? Do I like being around people who are um, sort of emotionally reserved or do I like being around people who are like, girl, my God, I'm, I was crying all day, you know, and they're just going to tell me the truth about that kind of stuff. I want to be around those people. Like if you, when you start like building that identity and it feels stronger, you can, it's like that respect starts to come a little more naturally, I think. And it doesn't feel like such a scary thing to ask for. Absolutely not. 
Okay. Here's another one for me. There's been a deep connection. And I've talked about this between feelings of loneliness, like feelings of isolation and feeling like I'm too much, which I think is rooted in shame. Can you talk about how all of those kind of work together with shame, loneliness, isolation, the feeling of being too much? Sure. And I often call shame, shame monsters. And I'm going to tell you why super quick. And I totally am not going to appropriate this. I'm giving it to my daughter because she's the one that came up with this. Like we have two, we have what we call what she calls fear protectors and we have fear monsters and fear protectors are the protectors in us that are things like look before you cross the street. Don't touch something hot. Last time you walked down that alley, you got mugged. Maybe don't do that again. Those are our fear protectors. Our fear monsters are also protectors. But the difference between fear monsters and um, fear protectors is what she says. Fear monsters don't believe in us. Oh, my God. I mean, and she was like four, I think, when she came up with this. And of course, it was all around poop. But that's another story for another day. But seriously, like the profound, the profound moments this one can have is, is astounding. And I really see shame as like a protector, but it's like a, it's still, it uses kind of monstrous behavior towards us um, because it doesn't believe in us, right? Like it uses fear to shut us down and shut us away from connection, courage, clarity, confidence. It thinks isolation is going to be protective and it uses like somewhat punitive means to enact the strategy. So for, for me, like here's like my hypothesis of like one of the cycles. So however we get the messaging, we get this messaging that we are too much and we also kind of internalize it. Uh, and we and we use it to navigate something that feels dangerous or is not getting our needs met. And when we get that message, it feels like we're being rejected. Like who we are is unacceptable. Rejection feels lonely, especially when it's coming from a caregiver, someone in our home, these people that we must rely on for survival for teaching us how to make our way through the world that we're going to, to, to say like, I've been assaulted. How do I handle this? Right. So our shame monster does actually want to protect us from being rejected by them. So it isolates us with the story and the feeling like shutting us down and shutting us away. So it protects us from that outside rejection by rejecting us internally. And that internal uh, rejection creates even more loneliness and even more of the too much ease, right? Like just don't exist and you won't be rejected. So just keep it all inside. Which I'll say just don't exist and you won't be rejected is exactly what was behind my suicidal ideation when I was like literally thinking about like it would self-soothe to think about being in a grave. It was like, if I just didn't exist, then I wouldn't have to experience this pain, which is like, what a mind fuck. Yes. Yes. And like, you know, it, it is a mind fuck. And in moments, like you said, it's soothing and it makes sense. It's right. It's and such a call, right? It's such a call for, for attention and for need. Right. Um, and I, you know, when you were telling your story, I was really stuck with like, wow, 
there was still something inside of you that had that like courage and had that confidence to be like, fuck this, I'm getting help. And Mm. I will sit here until I get it. Like, yeah, it's like making my leg hairs grow. (laughs) I finally (laughs) shaved my legs after like a week. And it's making my leg hairs grow with like goosebumps. When I think about that, like, wow, there was something and there's a part of you inside of you, you, your real like radiance was just like, Oh no, it is time. We are going to get you what you need. Mm. Yeah. I think, well, I think it was sort of like, I can't go through this and I can't keep having this be my reality. Like something has to fucking give Mm. love what you're saying. This, um, this differentiation, when is our fear there to protect us. And when does our fear not believe in us? When is it us just rejecting ourselves even more? Yeah. So powerful. Um, and I, you said at one point, like, depending on where we got this messaging that we're too much. Right. And that's why I wrote this third question is because like my experience is mine, but there are so many ways that you could have gotten this messaging. Right. And I think one of them is culturally. So this is kind of a long question. I'm just going to like read what I wrote. (laughs) Sure. The patriarchy has for a very long time made people like John Wayne and James Dean and whatever the 007 dude's name is. What's his, do we know? James Bond. Oh, I know somebody in my family who likes them. Okay. Uh, James Bond. These are like the poster children of masculinity because they don't have feelings, right? They don't bond with people. They like never fall in love with the lady who falls in love with them, right? Like they get the job done. I experienced that sentiment and that kind of like cultural factor big time with hipster dating culture when I was living in San Francisco, right? It's really fucked up and unhealthy, but it's sort of the standard that we have been held to for such a long time whatever your gender identification. Right. And I think it's also like in those movies, granted, these are older movies, but 007 isn't like that's, they still make those. They keep bringing it back. They keep bringing it back. And it's, there's that, that ongoing motif of like the women are kind of dumb because they fall in love with the guy and he's smart because he doesn't return their feelings. And that's like the smart, cool thing. Right. So there's this like gendering around like being dumb, equals being a lady and having feelings, being smart equals being a dude and being masculine and not having feelings. Right. Okay. So anyway, it's also why you hear a lot of discourse around, you know, like women can't have jobs that put them in positions of power because they can't be objective with all those crazy feelings they have going on. And in fact, I'd say there's a very long cultural history of calling women crazy for having big feelings, having feelings at all, like not even big, like so much. So in fact, that like That word lunatic, I don't know if people know this, but that word lunatic comes from Luna, which is the moon because women were supposedly lunatics when they're on their moon cycles, aka their periods. I think that we could also have this conversation around um, like people of color, you know, aren't like this, this um, cliche around like people of color are so outward with their emotions and that's why they can't like be trusted. And, you know, um, certainly as a person who is half Mexican, I know that like, I have experienced that around like Latin people or, you know, Mexican people being seen as just too much too over the top. Right. So anyway, all that's to say, can you kind of talk about how this 
patriarchal and white supremacists, like policing of emotions, how that might affect us and our mental health and this whole idea of being too much. I do want to say like, I I feel like the patriarchy, like policing of our emotions is this weaponizing of what I think generations way back had to do again to survive. You know, the world the world that we live in now is definitely a dangerous place, at least from time to time and all the time for way too many people. Um, and it used to be even more dangerous. Um, so that's one piece of it. And I look at how far we have to be into our lives to actually have a chance to look at our emotions and begin to understand them and to even have really have the privilege to consider our mental health. Right. Right. Um, and how, look at how far we've come as humans where, where some of us have a place where we can recognize that mental health is important to our community, to our humanity and to our society. So like there is this history of we can't have emotions because we have to survive, right? And then as we continually get this message, like I'm constantly working on it as a parent and all these parenting moves that like having big emotions is okay. But as a parent who like whose profession is emotions, there are still times when my children whose... Uh, cannot pass a mental health status exam, right? They cannot pass a mental health status exam or being exactly what they are, dysregulated little beings. And I feel my insides want to shut them down because I feel uncomfortable. I can't tolerate what's happening inside of me. And I think that that happens for so many years over time. And as we've grown as a society, I think that the patriarchy found that not having emotions was successful and powerful. And like, you know, you hear sometimes in around abuse that the victim can take what's powerful from the perpetrator and then recapitulate that in either the same or in different ways to have some sense of power. And I think mm-hmm. that's really what the patriarchy was doing. But what's amazing is we do, we are living in a world now that says that's actually not healthy to us as a humanity, as a society, as actually as a community that wants to survive. And so I kind of like, in some ways, I don't want to give the patriarchy too much credit. You know, again, it's like a little bit of like a punch in the face. Um, But I also want to recognize like how far we've come and how many people out there still don't even have this privilege, don't have this moment and space in their life to say that my mental health is important. They're still scrapping and exiling and strategizing and pushing just to get through. Mm. So I kind of answer your question and I kind of don't. Mm. So one thing that you talked about that I thought was interesting was this idea of borrowing from your abuser, if I'm getting it right. Yeah. So it's sort of like, you shut me down and you had power over me. So now I shut you down so that I get the power 
from the situation that originally disempowered me. I want to be on that side of it. Am I getting that right? And also like you learn to shut yourself down. Like, I don't like this feeling. I'm going to be self-critical and I'm going to shut it down. Mm. And when, and your body sometimes does it, I think really unconsciously, like we absorb these situations, you know, again, I, I use my children so much as examples because it, it, it shows that line between nature and nurture so much where like, I will see my older child use their power over my younger child. And they'll do it enough where then the younger child gets dysregulated and tries it out on the older one, right? Mm. And the older one is often like surprised by it. And it's totally unconscious by my younger one. Like he doesn't have the mental capacity yet to, to think these things through. But there's something in his body that recognizes what feels powerful against them and wants to take it in and use that as a strategy possibility for themselves in the future. Mm. So I guess part of dismantling that, because I get, you know, of course, my next thought is like, okay, well, if we are learning this in the culture, if we're learning this not from our family, but from our society, right? Then, then what, <laughs> like, how do we, you know? And so is it part of that dismantling is maybe just seeing this power dynamic for what it is or how, or do you have thoughts about that? I mean, I, I, I see this as, and I don't want to be too Pollyanna about it because I think that could be very exclusionary, but like, again, like the privilege of where I'm sitting and what I get to do professionally and what I see, like, you know, as, as I see all this stuff in parenting and how to raise your kids and things like that is, is we are noticing and each generation is making shifts and changes. And we're noticing more that our, like you said, our feelings can feel dangerous, but that doesn't mean that they are dangerous. Like you were like, exactly like what you were talking about before. Um, and you know, societally we'll ha we're having more leadership around it. We're having more organization around it. Um, mental health is slowly, but surely like being less and less stigmatized and being more and more prioritized. Right. Even, it, even while it's also being commodified because like, that's what we do. Um, but you know, the important thing is like, you were saying it yourself, you're like, I knew I needed support. I started to re I did the hard thing to reach out and get it. And I started to look for people that would emote with me, not shut me down. And so I think very, very imperfectly and very, very messily, we need to keep pushing forward. We need to keep advocating for ourselves. We need to keep advocating for our littles. We need to, you know, advocate for, you know, for prison reform. You know what I mean? Like there is so much more that we can do and it's to not let up and to notice the progress that's happening at the same time. And try to grab as many people along the way as we can so they don't get left behind. Mm. 
I love that. It's a really good point. I get, I hadn't thought of that, that maybe even the fact that I'm asking this question is indicative of how far we've come on some level. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So here's the big one in your experience. How, how do we start working through this feeling? You know, if this is coming up for us, if we're suffering with this feeling of being too much, what's the antidote? Like when you work with your clients, where do we start? I mean, I love to use the word, the long goal, the long goal, um, because that's one of the things I always have to work on within myself, within my clients is to know what the long goal is, but to start where we are. But the long goal is like, rather than almost like an antidote, we want to work towards transformation. And again, you in a lot of ways showed one amazing way to start that transformation. You know, I look at like the too muchness. I see it as a part of us. It's not all of us. Like you said, it is part of you. It is a childlike part of you on the inside. It is not all of who you are. And so the idea is to take this part of you that has had this important role inside of you and offer it the opportunity to transform right? And to transform from having this role of shaming you into smallness and to isolation and potentially, you know, and this is where we get to use like creativity and things like that. Like maybe it wants to transform into more of a discerning role where it says, like you said, like, when I'm in relationship with this person, can it help me discern, like, am I getting to be me when I'm around this person? Or am I noticing myself, you know, over contain and, you know, transform back into my little duck, things like that. But like to start at the very beginning, I think it is to look inside of ourselves and, and, and see like this too muchness, does this feel like all of me? Or can I be aware that this is a part of me? And there's stuff to work with. Like if you feel so blended that it feels like all of you. Okay. So how, what can we do to create like a millimeter of space between this part of you and the rest of you? Uh, And then we want to get to know it. We want to use that curiosity, you know, like you so beautifully said, I started to ask it questions like, how old are you? How do you feel in my body? Where do you live inside of me? You're trying to help me out. You're, you're trying to get my attention around something. Like, what, what is that? And we want to start to build a relationship with that part. And instead of it becoming some sort of power struggle, we want to create a sense of collaboration with it. Like, oh, like, I hear you. You're here again. Like, okay, like, it, it sounds like, okay, I am feeling something right now what is going on? You know what I mean? And and start to, and I don't want to get too specific because I don't want to take away from different people's perspective and experiences. And I certainly want to allow like their creativity and their curiosity around their parts to come, to come alive and to have some agency. But that I would say that that very first step is to start to have some respect and have some compassion for this part and recognize that this is a part of me. This is not all of who I am. This was a part of me that has a very important role 
and how it's fulfilling that role might be about the past instead of right now. You know what I mean? Like it's using a strategy that had a very important function and it keeps trying to use that function, but the situation for the situation, it's not appropriate now. So, you know me, vague and specific at the same time. (laughs) Well, I think that it's so powerful to get curious. And I love what you said about being collaborative with the feeling instead of fighting against the feeling when it comes up, because it's like you feel the feeling, which is very shaming, right? right? Like. Um, I feel like I'm too much. And so I'm ashamed of who I am. And then sometimes for me, what also happens is I'm ashamed of that. I have the feeling also, Yeah. So there's the shame that you're experiencing. And there's the shame of experiencing the shame. <laughs> uh, and so like just sort of releasing that pattern, I think is what you're saying and getting into this collaborative space where it's like, Oh, you're here to teach me something. And like, yes, I accept that this is really painful. This really hurts. And I am not going to push it away though. Like I'm not going to be, um, go into that humiliation, shame spiral. I'm going to ask questions. Yeah. This, you know, we, so often of us and I, you know, I'm going to include myself on this at times too, even, even though I try not to, like you said before, like I'm not, I'm not perfect. Like there's this sense that I have to change this about myself. I have to eradicate this. I've got to get this disease out of me. and that feels like, again, like this reinforcement of what we experienced like growing up, which is this, you're not right. Go get right. Go fix yourself. You're wrong. You know, and don't come back until you're right. Or you're not going to be acceptable until you fix yourself. And that is just fucking bullshit. (laughs) Let me be real professional. Like who you are is good and right and as it should be and i think like you said like building that trust in yourself building that compassion and respect for all of your parts that curiosity being able to say like yeah you know what like i'm going to be really honest with you i i don't really like the shaming way that you come at me and i'm imagining you don't know what else to do when we feel this way, like what's going on? Like, tell me more, like, let me hear from you. Um, and treating this part as like, as another little person, like you said, almost like as a little kiddo who needs our compassion, who needs our curiosity, who needs our slowness, who needs our tolerance. Right. And it can be really beautiful. I mean, I keep thinking beautiful because yeah, I'm still halfway living in your story right now. I am just completely blown away by what you brought in just now around like this idea that you have to get this, you have to get this disease out of your body so that you can be right. I thank you so much for bringing that piece in because I do feel like that's something that has come up for me so many times. Like, oh, you do this bad thing. And in this case, it's like you, you're too much and you have to get rid of it so that you can be loved. And until you do, you never will. And you, and also by the way, you don't love yourself and that's why you don't get love. It's like the whole thing Mm. is so you're absolutely right. It is just, uh, going into the same process that we experienced as kids where it was like, 
you're fucked up and you need to like you need to go to your room if you're going to cry and don't come back here till you're done crying and you're over it. Right. It's like that same exact we're just going into that same we're, we're going through those motions again. I mean, I tell when we have like rough moments, um, we when I say we most often it's it's, you know, between my daughter and I or my son and I or, you know, the three of us together. Something that I'll say and that I'm really saying to all of us is like how we are feeling right now is absolutely okay and absolutely acceptable. What we want to work on is how we are expressing that to each other. Like I'm feeling like sometimes I'll say like, I'm feeling like I want my mean parts. My mean parts want to be in control right now, but I know that I love you and that I, and, and that's not actually how I want to treat you. So I'm telling you, I'm having big feelings right now. And it's important to me that I express them to you with respect for respecting compassion for myself and for you. And I'm telling you, you are having big feelings and those big feelings are absolutely okay. They should be here. Once we're regulated, what we want to work on is how do we express them respectfully and compassionately to yourself and to the other person? And I think as adult, I mean, even as adults, like that's what we got to do. Right. I mean, that I, I am so impressed with that dialogue that it's so over their heads though. Like I, I think I'm therapizing myself in the moment way more (laughs) than I am them, but you know, that's why they'll have a trust fund for therapy. Hopefully. (laughs) I love it. I'm, I'm obsessed with that. I'm going to like write it down when we get off. Um, Is there anything I've missed that you wanted to touch on or bring into the conversation about feeling like you're too much? I, you know, the only thing I just want to say is like, I connect with this so hard and it's so full. And I feel like we could talk about this for 10 hundred million hours, as my son would say, and then there would still be more. Um, And that this is long stuff. This isn't, I'm going to go on a weekend retreat or this isn't you know, it's not an overnight poof, you know, it's, it's long stuff. And like, just for you and for myself and whoever is out there, like we're worth the long stuff. Like we, we really, 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 really are. And those little kiddos inside of us, we really, 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 really are. We're just worth it. Thank you so, so, so much, Sarah, for coming on for this episode. I, have learned so much. I adore you. This has just been like such an incredible conversation. If people want to get a hold of you, is there a way for them to do that? You know, psychology today um, and the relationalcenter.org are the two places where you can find my contact information. Um, I'm very low on the social media scale. (laughs) That's very Virgo of you. Yes. (laughs) Can't fit it in a spreadsheet. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party, or you can email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, def hit me up. Also, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It makes a huge difference and it honestly means so much to me. Although my friend just pointed out that Spotify has a glitch where you can't give a pod any more than four stars or maybe it's just my pods. I don't know. So that's rude, but Apple is all good. Um, 
so so if you use apple that's a great place to rate review subscribe also if you'd like to support the pod you can now you can go to anchor.fm forward slash the patrama party and scroll down to the support button um i would love nothing more than to hire an actual editor for the pod someone who knows what they're fucking doing which is not me (laughs) so if you're able and you get value from the work i do here please support and yeah until next time baby enjoy the party Bye. bye